Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlyle. Uh, my co-host, Rachel Santizo, could not be here today. And today, we are going to take you to a higher authority, sort of. <laughs> now, don't tune out, because this isn't all going to be about religion, but I thought it would be interesting to talk about the role spirituality plays in uh, addiction and recovery. Uh, and uh, a lot of people find that uh, one, of their, one of the things they lean on for as they go through their recovery. And who would be better to talk about it than you call yourself the cheerful chaplain? I do. <laughs> Chantel McBride, uh, you, you are a chaplain. I am. Yeah. And, and and you're not going to preach to people today. No, right? and you know what? We don't preach to people even in the hospital settings or as a chaplain. We meet people where they're at. And and it's a non-denominational thing that you do, right? Right. Mm -hmm. We call it interfaith. Okay. Yeah, so we service all faiths, including people who don't believe in God. And, you know, anybody, we meet them where they're at and just see where they're at in their spirituality and how they feel about things. We were chatting. Uh, I've known Chantel for quite some time. We were we were chatting uh, just before we recorded this podcast about how many deaths that you have attended in over the years. Yeah, yeah. I figure, not that I keep track, but, you know, each of those people have brought something special into my life and taught me a lesson, and maybe I've taught them something. Um, but I have attended about 500. I've been at 500 deaths of people passing, and I've been a part of about a thousand, whether it be helping with their funeral or just preparing and helping them with mortuary plans and then, you know, leaving. But I've attended about 500. That must take a toll on you. It does. It's been such sacred space for me. And there's just so many things that happen and the dynamics and the people I've met and just this special feeling that comes, I have learned, you know, you wonder, is there an afterlife? What's what's after this? And I've often thought about that and just being with all those people and hearing what happens at the end of life when sometimes people aren't even on medication and they see their loved ones coming, they see a light, you know, just the things that they say. It's hard for me to deny that there's anything after this. And I love watching or following near-death experiences, people who have had them. Um, you, I love you, reading about that. You've had a lot that. of them? I haven't, but I just, I follow people who do. And uh, I love hearing stories like that. And for me, I do think there's something after this life. And so it's just, it's been a big teaching place for me. And it's just very sacred. What do you, let's say I am dying in a hospital room and I don't have any strong religious beliefs, and I'm scared. I don't mm -hmm. want to die. What do you, what goes on conversationally between you and, and me if that's if I'm the one who's dying? Yeah, sometimes we can get to a place of understanding and not being scared, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes people do um, die afraid. It just depends on you know their belief system. There's so many things that factor into that. And just being with someone, holding their hand, asking them, you know, what can I do to help soften this for you? How can I help you not be scared? And I think a lot of times it's just being present with somebody, holding their hand and, and just being there for them. And, and I think a lot of people need that witness of their being scared. They just want someone to recognize, you know what, I'm scared. And do you recognize that? Do you validate that? 
and I can and do. It is scary. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and one of one of the things I rely on is AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And AA always refers, and they way back in the 30s when they wrote the book, uh, to a higher power. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you believe? And and it seems an AA seems to be relatively successful for a lot of people around the world. Uh, and and I remember my sponsor saying, "You don't have to believe in God. Your your higher power can be anything you want it to be. It could be a leaf on a tree." Mm-hmm. Uh, do you believe that like accepting the fact that there is a higher power plays a role in people who are trying to recover? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I do. I do think finding something, and even if it isn't God, but finding something bigger than you, something to aspire to, to go to um, when you need that help. But I find that God in a lot of situations, although it can be a trigger too for people in recovery, um, the religious part, God part can also be a trigger. Right. Um, So it's kind of a 50-50 thing. But I'll tell you too, in in death, you know, even I don't want to go back to that, but um, there is, you can tell a difference between someone who has a faith, who believes in something um, being more calm, more at peace in passing than someone who doesn't. And I've had people at the end of life, you know, even say, okay, you know, will you, like if they're LDS, will you make sure that my work gets done, even though they don't believe? And I, I've given the look like, what? You know, like, what do you mean? You've been atheist right years. Well, just in case. You know, so there uh-huh. is that seed. There is that belief, whatever religion you are, you know, I've had people, tons of people who have fallen away from whatever church, Catholic church, at the end of life, they want their their last rites. They want the blessing of the sick. They want the, those faith-based things that they grew up with, even though they haven't practiced or believed those in years. It becomes important. And I find that in recovery too, you know, and when people in behavioral health or um, if they've overdosed or tried to take their life and they've come, they they didn't succeed, that all of a sudden... It can go both ways, but a lot of times it does go that way of, okay, I need to find something bigger than me. And whatever that is for them, that's what it is. But just to have a belief in something. I was surprised uh, this podcast is not aimed at recruiting people for Odyssey House, but I've worked there for five years. And I was surprised. I got a call from uh, the woman who runs the gift gift store at the Cathedral of the Madeline. Mm. And she said... She said, we have, a, we have a group of your clients who come here every Sunday, mm. and they want to learn how to say the rosary. Mm. And, and her, uh, and first of all, I was surprised that a group of our clients, because we're not a religion-based uh, treatment center at all, I was surprised that, that some of our clients, because they're very hard, some of them are hardcore people who have committed crimes and come out of prison, that they go to the Cathedral of the Madeline, but the thing she pointed out uh, she she said they want to know how to say the rosary, and I said, well, we're not a religion based program. And she said, well, the the point of it isn't to to push the Catholic religion or or talk about the Virgin Mary, but the point is that saying the rosary is a form of meditation, mm. and that's what my sponsor told me. Uh, and I'm non religious. He said, he said, try to pray every morning and evening, even if you don't know who you're praying to mm-hmm. or what, uh, and, and it will relax you. And I, and I did. 
And he said, pray, pray for something positive for people you love or things like that. And, and I still do it and it works, you know, and I still am not sure who or what I'm praying to. Right. Yeah, it is. A, there is a calm to that. And even, you know, in when people do overdose or have a near death experience from that or, you know, try to take their life, they we get called all the time to the behavioral health unit. They just want a prayer. They want to feel some calmness and even not even for themselves. It is a meditation practice, like you said, which is um, true. But they just want it to calm them. And it does. It calms them down. They'll have somebody that's being unruly and they'll call us in. We can say a little prayer for them. We'll always, always ask, OK, what was specifically? Is there something you'd like me to pray for? And then sometimes they'll say, sometimes they won't. And we just say what comes to our heart. And there is a calmness to that. It calms them down. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times that happens. You know, I love that messages of water. Um, his name is Emoto. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but we're made up mostly of water. And he did a lot, did a lot of studies about water holds memory and how, since we're water, we hold that memory. And there's a lot of um, books on that, like keeping the score, you know, things that say, if we hold those emotions in, we store those in different places. And he talks a lot about since we're water and we hold memory, you know, even if we walk around with a prayer in our heart, that that is always with us, you know, no matter what that is. And so we carry that wherever we go to other people. Hmm. People can feel that. And we hold on to those things. So prayer is very calming, for sure. Now, you have an experience in your family uh, yeah. with addiction. Can mm -hmm. you share that? Yeah, I talk about a little bit. You know, I try and keep a little bit of privacy um, for that, too. But it's also part of my journey. Um, but yeah, we have a son who's um, gone through and still is through some addiction issues. And it's hard. It's tough. It's it's taught me. He's probably been one of my biggest teachers. And I know both sides. You know, when if my when my chaplaincy, when I go into somebody's room or, or talk to a family member, I can relate to both. I I can try to relate as much as possible to the person who's addicted and just that suffering. And sometimes, you know, people just want to hold on to that suffering. That it's just a piece of them and they feel like they're not worthy and they don't matter. And there's a word that I love to teach people. It's Genshai. It's spelled um, G-E-N-S-H-A-I. And it means, it's a Hindu word, and it means never treat your, anyone in a manner that makes them feel small, including yourself. And so I really try and teach that, that, you know, everybody matters. Um, I think everyone does have their own journey um, there's a book, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. Have you ever heard of that book? No. Oh, no. It's, you need to read that. Okay. It's an easy read. It's based on a true story of a sister who lost her brother, and he comes back to her. So it's another near-death type thing. But he's able to come back to her, and this is a true, like she's telling us as this has happened. And he says in that, in one of the times he comes to her, he says that since he took the hard road down here and had to learn the hard way, and learned all these lessons that he said in heaven there was different classrooms going on and people had to stop in those different classrooms and learn and he didn't have to because he learned it down here he took a hard road and i really like that perspective um you know if you believed in that kind of thing that you know he that we're all down here for whatever reason and for whatever journey and we all teach each other day in and day out and my son's been my biggest teacher, although, you know, I really hope that one day he finds recovery and 
you express uh, you're you're pretty active in social media, mm -hmm. and and I frequently see you express. I guess I'd call it frustration mm -hmm. in dealing with your son's addiction. Uh, how yeah. do you? I mean, what what are the what is the frustration? I I facilitate a family support group, and 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 they all have adult kids who are mm -hmm. either out on the street or in jail or in treatment, uh, who are who have a substance use disorder. And and they all express frustration because they don't understand it. It's like, why would he do? Why he or she would do that? What mm. do, what do you go through? It's a roller coaster ride, that is for sure. And it's up and down and up and down. And my frustration, I think most of it comes from, and I think all the parents out there, we can see so much in our children, even though they're adults now. You know, we see so much potential, and even the strangers that I meet, you know, I see the potential in them, and it's just frustrating. For them not to be able to see it in themselves. And even if you're not an alcoholic or an, a, someone who's addicted, we all have that in us that we just can't see our worth. And that's probably the most frustrating. And then just the decisions that are made that are detrimental to him being able to get to where I think he needs to be, yeah, in, but, well, he but he think doesn't that. think that. Yeah, and so that's you know it's a it is definitely a roller coaster. There's a lot of emotions along with all of it, and just you never know day to day and what you're going to get when you know. Sometimes he comes home, he shows up out of the blue, and you never know what you're going to get. You know if he's if he's going to be high or if he's not. If he's going to be nice, if he's on a tyrant. Um, there's just so many things and it's hard. Are you prepared? You're a chaplain and you deal with death all the time. Are you prepared mm -hmm. for that phone call saying we found your son and he overdosed? I think I am. Cause my friend, Jason Coombs, I think you might mm -hmm. know him. Sure. Um, he, uh, he's like one of my biggest mentors and he has said, you know, you need to be prepared for that because that could happen. And I know I can as much as possible. I don't know if we ever will or can when that phone call actually happens. Um, hopefully not. But I know my husband hasn't, he's not there at all. Yeah, I know that that will um, alter his life in a big way. We have, uh, we frequently have people in recovery speaking to that family group or on this podcast. And when their mind has cleared, and sometimes it takes a pretty long time for that to happen. Mm -hmm. They they feel so apologetic for the crap that they have put their mm. family through. But at the time that you're in the that you're in the middle of addiction, you're thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about anything except the next drug, right? Uh, which is which is sort of hard as a as a parent because it's like. You know, I love you so much, but you act like you don't care about me at all, you know. Yeah, and that's definitely a factor, too, for sure. Um, yeah. when, when you talk to him, I guess it's sort of hard to figure out whether his mind is working mm -hmm. clearly. I mean, do you have discussions about his his addiction? Yeah, and he doesn't like that. That doesn't go very well. Um you know, and, and it's such a fine line between having that caring and compassion, and, you know, we're his parents to enabling and, you know, and he can be very manipulative and he knows our heart strength. He knows what pulls on us. And so it's hard. It is very hard. I, I don't have the answers to that. I wish 
I wish I did. I do know um, they, and I don't want to condone this at all, um, but I think sometimes, you know, that those demons that people deal with, I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, you try and put your, because as a chaplain, you you walk with someone you in their shoes, you try and, you know, have that empathy for someone and just really get into their stories and walk with them um, and help them by just really being silent and letting them talk, asking them the right questions to get them to think. Um, but they're just, they, how do they you do suffer that with so your, deep. Right. And how do you do that with your own son? Oh, uh, and it, you know what? Well, you can't be a prophet in your own home. That's one thing. <laughs> I'm like, I do not try and chaplain my son because for <laughs> sure that does not go over well at all. And I always haven't been a chaplain. So, you know, before that, yeah, I was his mom and I just have to still be that. You know, it's, I, I do try and use the skills because I know I did learn them a lot for my son and I try and just listen and I try and, walk him through the path like I would um, somebody that I came in contact with as a chaplain. And I just keep holding in my mind that, okay, I'm going to do this for somebody else's son. And hopefully one day someone will come to do that for mine hmm. because it's hard. You know, your kids don't listen to you. They no. don't want to hear it and they don't. And Tanner, I don't even know if he knows that I'm, I think he knows I'm a chaplain, but um, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't chaplain him. What, uh, what's been your experience? I, I know you, uh, you made contact with me uh, quite some time ago about uh, getting into a treatment program. What has been your experience in general trying to deal with treatment programs and, and, and have your son uh, help buy a program? Yeah, and he's been in a couple he just doesn't fit in that box. And I, again, I just, in, in the way I run my life, I pray that he finds that spot where he does decide, okay, I need this help. And he's at that point right now. Again, I do think in the beginning, and I'm going to be honest, I think in the beginning, you know, he started out with marijuana and who knows where it would have went, but he got sentenced to go to group therapy. And in that group therapy was some kids that were doing the hard stuff. They were doing the heroin and the meth. And Tanner, my son, wasn't even into that. At what age are we talking oh, about? Oh, gosh, that was probably 15, maybe. Okay. So go ahead. And I, I think it. that he made friends. You know, he got to know those people. Group therapy was very intimate. They shared details. He had to learn to, okay, I need to keep up with these guys because everyone was laughing at him. You smoke All marijuana. You do is yeah, yeah whoopie yeah. do. You yeah. know, like this is you got to get into the hard stuff. That's where it's at. You know, and I really, honestly, I honestly feel that, and I don't know for sure, but I honestly feel that that was detrimental to his path. I think that then he started, and then when he got sentenced to jail, you know, he did meet people in there. There wasn't. Um, I'm trying to think now which. Who has the CATS program? Salt Lake County or Utah County? Salt Lake, Salt Lake County. County. Utah yeah. County doesn't. He got, um, first time he got sentenced was in Utah County. They did not have right. any programs that were, that he ever said that were worthwhile when he got busted in Salt Lake County. So I'd always be glad <laughs> when he got busted in Salt Lake County because <laughs> like, oh yeah, they have programs there. They have some help. Like yeah. he might get some help there. Um, but it, yeah, it was just... You know, there's just so many times you just wish that, okay, I hope that 
he finds that place. And I do believe in recovery. I do believe, I think there's that community. I think you need that. Huge community. Yeah, that keeps each other accountable. And there are people that still fall um, from that. Sure. They just can't can't do it. And they do fight a lot of demons, I think. And, and well, The one thing I've observed after working here for five years is, and it's a, it's a gross generality, but I think that if somebody really wants to recover mm. and is sincere about it, almost any program in the world will work. Mm. You know, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it can be based on 12 steps. It can be a therapeutic community like ours. It could be uh, Renaissance Ranch, which is more religious. Mm. Uh, but but if, if you really want it, it'll work. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I do believe that. And you do have to, yeah, you have to get to a place where you, you want, because it's hard. Absolutely. Yeah, they work hard at getting into recovery. They, it's a hard, a hard road to take. And they need to find that right place where they feel like they fit in and they're ready and they really have a will. And I know my son has that. I know that his will is strong. And if he really willed that, if he really, really wanted that, I do believe with all my heart that he could. Um, be in recovery you know and they thrive in that they he has his own community out on the street yeah you know they they stab each other in the back literally sometimes they steal their stuff but yet they take care of each other there's a community a homeless community that really um helps each other and and yeah if you look at each other's back like when they do these encampment cleanups Mm -hmm. you know they're all sticking together and they're all saying don't take my tent don't take my sleeping bag Mm -hmm. and and they do fight a lot amongst themselves yeah Yeah, we get them in the hospital they fight and stab each other but then they turn around and give the shoes the only shoes they have to each other you know here have my shoes if your feet are cold or let somebody else sleep in your tent with Mm -hmm. you or something yeah i have trouble understanding all that yeah it's a community and they thrive and some people just thrive in that i think there's a lot of people out on the street that yeah don't want to be there and they've had bad luck and but i do think there's some that just that's that's their livelihood they love it they thrive in that environment describe what it's like being a chaplain uh I mean, do you, do you sit around at a hospital waiting for somebody who needs a chaplain, or how does it work? We get referrals, and um, the doctors and nurses refer us a lot. People will ask, and then we just walk around and do rounds and uh, just talk to people. You know, I came from Nordstrom. I worked for Nordstrom for like 28 years, and I always thought, gosh, where can I go that I just walk around and help people? And the hospital is exactly, and the funny thing is, I used to think, okay, we're missing the live piano player, because back in the day, they had the live piano player at Nordstrom. Sure, sure. Well, Primaries has that. And so when I walk around, I think, okay, you know, I'm walking around and talking to people and just ministering, looking for people who maybe look like they're distraught, which isn't hard to find. And then <laughs> in they've a got, hospital? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, have you ever seen that video where, where um, the people are putting on an elevator and they have the little thought things that clouds yeah. that say... You know, my wife was just diagnosed with this or my husband just right, passed. Or, right. Yeah, and, and that's true. In the hospital, there's everybody has a story. Everybody has something they're going through. And you just approach people and they want to talk. They want someone to sit down and listen to them. They can tell their story. So all day long, we just pretty much hear stories wow. and minister and hold hands sometimes. And during COVID, that was hard. But I was still a handholder. And I thought, because... We didn't get kicked out. So I worked for Stewart 
um, hospitals, and we were the clergy for those two years. They kicked all the clergy out, family out. We were it. So I was doing end-of-life uh, prayers and releases on FaceTime, on WhatsApp, on Messenger, anything, Zoom, anything that the family knew how to do, I learned how to do it. Um, so they would be, I would be in there usually with the nurse and the person passing, and we would have their family on the other end of that. And Wow. Yeah, that must it, have been quite an experience because families couldn't be there even for no, their dying loved ones. No. So you were the middle person. Yep. Yeah, and at primaries, they, at Intermountain, they kicked everyone out, so they didn't even have that. We at least had that. So we ministered um, so much for those two years, and I think a lot of it of being being placed, you know, because I do believe that I was placed there for that that time and those moments, and I did the best I could. And but it was that's what we did all day is just minister to people, and they were lonely. They didn't have well, sure, their you can't have visitors and, or anything. Mm, so Ooh. we would go in and and visit with them. And in the beginning, I was so scared. I just thought I was going to get COVID and die. And I was so scared. I had a little meltdown in the chapel and my boss came in and just said, you need to stop. <laughs> you know, you need to stop it right now and, and get a grip. Because I was just, I just thought this is it. You know, I, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. And Did you ever get COVID? I did not. I have like. So you're in a hospital setting where people are dying from COVID mm -hmm. and you're ministering to them mm -hmm. and you never got it. No, and um, I got told I have this thing called T-cell immunity. I haven't looked research more into that, but because I finally, you know, even I was talking to my colleague yesterday, and we both kind of just in the end kind of gave up because we just thought we're going to get it, you know, and so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was so grueling having to gown up all the time, and we still had to do that, but just being scared all the time that we finally just um, let it go and just thought we're going to get it. It's just inevitable that we'll get it. And he didn't ever get it either. Neither one of us did. My my boss did, and I think the other two or the other three gentlemen, I think they they got it. But yeah, I don't and, mean to be personal, but do do you? I would think you would need therapy yourself, doing what you go through. Do you, do you <laughs> talk to a therapist? No, and I've wondered about that just in the last little bit. Because, I mean, five hundred deaths, and yeah. you know, it's watching yeah. people suffer is hard. I realized not too long ago, just a couple weeks ago, I was watching Grey Anatomy and this lady was having an operation on the table and she died in the, the flat line. And I was bawling. And I and afterwards, after it was all done, and that's good for you, you need to cry. I try and sure. cry as much as possible when, I, when it comes. I don't try and stop it. But after I thought that was really weird because I couldn't, in that moment, I couldn't decipher that that was a show. Hmm. I was living in that and not even consciously knowing it, but subconsciously I was connecting to that woman and she was passing on that table and I was affected by it on a TV show. And that's when I kind of realized, okay, I think I might have a little PTSD from yeah, all of no that. Kidding. I'm sure. So what's next for you? So what's next? I'm excited. Um, my ministry is about, well, it's going to change probably when this airs, right? It's going um, to air. Well, who knows when yeah. people will watch it. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a gentleman, Chad Hymas. A lot of people know him. He's one of the top 10 inspirational speakers in the world. He's been inducted into the Speakers Hall of Fame. I think it's been about 
20 years, maybe more, that he had a two-ton bale of hay fall on top of him out at his ranch. Wow. Left him quadriplegic. He's amazing. He That man is just out there changing lives. Um, he's inspired my life, and he's asked me to come and help him out at the ranch. It's um, Royal Creek Ranches. It's out in Rush Valley, Utah. Um, we're going to have leadership retreats there. He does a lot of hunting things, weddings, um, maybe some addiction retreats, some grief retreats. He's got an amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater. We'll wow. have some concerts. Um, so just doing some fun ministry work only through events, which I love. It'll be a lot more positive than what you're yeah. doing now. Are you still going to uh, do do chaplain? What do you call what chaplaincy? You do? Chaplaincy. Yeah. yeah, I will. I'm still. I love doing weddings for sure. I'll still do that. And yeah, I, I'll do some. Uh, PRN work at different places and, you know, maybe with the hospice. I've been with Good Shepherd Hospice for about 10 years now. And so that's really hard to leave that. And I'm sure, you know, I'll get called to help out here and there. And um, I'm doing some death doula trainings and yeah, so I'll still be in that arena, but in a different, different thing. I feel like I've been on some kind of mission <laughs> for 10 years, like a calling of sorts. Yeah. And I've just really got the nudge that, okay, you've done what you needed to do. And it's time to do something different. And I'll always have that. And I'll always be appreciative for the all the experiences I've had. It's well, been amazing. You, yeah, you have a lot of friends and a lot of followers. And so thank you for all you've done. Uh, I wish yeah. you well in the future. Uh, and I hope you find some peace with your son. Yeah, I me hope, too. I hope that works out. Yeah. And, and hopefully it will. Yeah. Because... All of a sudden, people will, it's its like the old light bulb coming on it, saying, I got to change my life. So mm, yeah. that would that would add to your life as well. Thank you mm -hmm. for coming to this podcast and yeah. sharing your thoughts. I always thought it'd be interesting to get sort of a, a spiritual point of view mm. on addiction, as well as looking at your life, because you've done so much. So yeah. thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thanks yeah, for the invite. It's good to see you. You again. too, likewise. And, and you're not selling at Nordstrom anymore, right? No, they still call me every once in a while. And this this Christmas, I was too busy. And I've been too busy the last couple months. I, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I miss it. It was fun. And I always say hope is free. Get some. You get some. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But you don't get a commission. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Right? Nope. Thank oh, I do in, in, in different ways. Yeah. In blessings. <laughs> thank you, Chantel. Thank you. And thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals. <laughs>